This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Now, Fight Back with Libby Snymer on Zoomer Radio. Good afternoon and welcome. It's Tuesday, which means it's time for our crack strategy panel. And we begin with a big sign that a spring election is in the offing. This morning, the prime minister shuffled his cabinet, his cabinet after industry minister Navdeep Baines told him he was retiring from politics and not running in the next election. The reason given was putting family first. And forgive me for being skeptical, but I'm always skeptical when that is the given reason. We'll drill down on the implications of those moves. Also, spiking COVID cases and drastic new measures, which will probably be announced right after the show signal. Political fallout at the provincial level as well. A few months ago, people generally believed that our governments were doing a good job managing this. Do you still think that? The numbers to call 416-360-0740, toll free 1-866-740-4740. And right now I'd like to welcome Karen Stintz, CEO of Variety Village, John Capobianco, Senior Vice President and Senior Partner, Fleischman Hillard High Road. And for the first time on our show, Charles Souza, the former Liberal Minister of Finance for Ontario. Hello, everyone. Hi, Libby. Great Hi, to be Libby. there, Libby. Thank you. Okay, well, let's start with uh, Charles. Uh, what do you make of this cabinet shuffle? Well, I, I, to your point, I, I I know Nav well. I know a few of them, and and I I'm interested to know the underlying reason. He's a young man of 43. He's been in politics for some time, on and off. I've spoken at his MBA program when he was uh, a, an associate professor at Ryerson. He's a young guy, and he's a lot of energy, so I'm not sure what his real plans are going forward. I mean, certainly family is important. We all have that, but you go into this game with your eyes wide open, and he recognizes, and his family recognizes the implications of that decision. It may be that he has another, another opportunity now uh, before him, and I think he wants to pursue you know, another, another direction, and that's fine. In regards to the replacements, I think they're all good. I mean, Francois Philippe... Uh, uh, will uh, be uh, important in his role. And uh, Marc Arnault, I think, with his stature, and he's a bit older, he certainly seems more composed and steady. He'll be essential in terms of diplomatic relations with the U.S. and China, which are very sensitive right now. And Omar, Omar's been in the Peel region as a young man. Um, he's fought and he's worked really hard. He's a steady force as well, and, and he'll bring some value to, to the cabinet. Okay, well, interesting what you said. Uh, to me, usually f- family reasons, uh, one of the things it could mean is that they got an extremely lucrative private sector offer <laughs> somewhere else, or uh, that they were caught doing something naughty. <laughs> uh, or about to. <laughs> what? 
Or about to. <laughs> or about to. Um, yeah. Uh, so that's what it, it usually means, means to me. I mean, I, I read in, uh, one of the reports, like, a you know, a, a little story. His daughter said, Daddy, if you don't come home now, you will miss my whole childhood. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. Um, but speaking, uh, John Keppel Bianco of the changes, my impression was that uh, François-Philippe Champagne was well thought of, but this looks like a demotion, doesn't it? Well, it is a demotion. There's there's very few portfolios that are more important than foreign affairs, uh, and innovation certainly isn't one of them. Um, although, you know, innovation and, and economic development is, is an important one, uh, I find it's far more important at the provincial level than it is at the federal level. Um, but just to, to your earlier point, though, Libby, I, I too remain skeptical when politicians, you know, say that they want to they want to do uh, leave politics to spend more time with their family, not to take anything away from that, but especially when you're that young and you get into it, as Charles says, with your eyes wide open. Uh, and, you know, you know that when you get into politics, you're in there for a number of terms and, and some, you know, at a certain age, you know, want to do it for two terms or whatever. But but certainly Nav, Nav has been is a young and, and certainly uh, has always been an upcomer and, and um ambitious uh, one. So it'll be interesting to see what, what the reason is, you know, but, but sometimes, uh, you know, cabinet ministers uh, do have other issues. And, and uh, in the case of Bill Marneau, when he re- resigned, you know, we all knew why he resigned. And, and uh, you know, you, you try to spin as much as you can the reason. But nonetheless, uh, shuffles happen uh, in a minority government. I think the prime minister obviously is, is getting ready for, for what could very well be an election this year. Uh, minority governments don't last more than 18 months normally, so it really is about the time for for that. And and some you know some politicians and leaders obviously will ask and canvass their caucus to see if anybody is not running because if if they're not running, then they want to give a cabinet spot to somebody who is uh, and give them some profile. So it's not unusual from that perspective, but but it was an unusual one in that given given Nav, Nav's uh, desi- desire to resign and then putting uh, uh, Minister Champagne there. From foreign affairs, I thought that was a demotion and something that that might have been percolating within the party uh, that that we don't we just don't know because I thought he was doing a, a decent job as well, uh, getting out there and talking to various foreign governments and, and whatnot. But but also not to take it away from Mark Garneau, who is is you know obviously quite talented and and somebody who was obviously well respected. But also maybe it is to put to change the focus in the U.S. with the new administration. Uh, with, yeah. with uh, President Biden uh, soon to be president of the next week, it could be a chance for for the government, for the liberal government, to change their focus and their face on how they deal with the U.S. Given the change there, yeah. Though uh, Karen, I, I was uh, going to speculate about that, but you would think that there would be a change in focus with a really major turn in the administration. Though I guess uh, some of the trade officials uh, are they going to stay or go? Uh, People like Lighthizer. Yeah, honestly, I I don't even know that I could say. I mean, there's no question China is emerging as a a serious threat uh, to Western democracies and and the sense of world order. And, you know, we've been experiencing that with the Michaels being held captive for, what, two years? And, you know, we don't have a decision on Huawei yet. We've got, uh, you know, a political hot potato still percolating uh, with the fact that there's this extradition hearing. So there, it's, it's a big file. And, you know, I, I guess credit uh, maybe to uh, the Minister Champagne who kept the lid on it, but it's percolating. And I, I think that there is a sense, and, 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 you know, COVID is kind of overtaking everything, but there is a worry about China and the emergence of China and the way China does its diplomacy and how that's going to impact 
um, mid mid powers like Canada and Australia and um, you know we have to figure that piece out and and maybe there is just a sense that um, it, it is it's going to become a bigger issue than maybe we even understand it and someone else needed to be leading that. But, but I don't know. Karen, uh, just one question. One of the other reasons that, that people uh, leave in a timely manner is that they sense a sinking ship. Uh, I'm sure all levels of government, <laughs> uh, you know, their approval ratings are, are going down, not up after, you know, nearly how, how long have we been? We've been in this mm-hmm. for nearly a year. Uh, do you get any sense of that at all? You know, it's, there is that. I mean, because I'm a little cynical myself, being a politician that did leave politics, and it certainly, um, you know, I was invited to leave, and I took the invitation. <laughs> okay. But, <laughs> I think, you know, for the, for the greater well, good. Okay. Karen, I voted for you for mayor. I just wanted you to know that. Oh, thank you. Karen, I feel for you, Karen. <laughs> but there's no question that no politician wants to sit. Wait a minute. John bench. lost an election too, so. Well, yeah. nomination, actually. But, <laughs> <laughs> no, well, yeah, no, yeah, yeah. We can have a pity party. Sorry, go ahead, Karen. Um, but, I, you know, I, I think that when you are a politician at the height of your game, you don't leave voluntarily. So I, I'm with you, Lou. There's something going on. We might not know what it is, but I, I really don't think um, it's entirely a family issue. I think there's other things at play. And uh, certainly nobody, you know, once they've been a minister, wants to be a backbencher. So, you know, there, there could be some writing on the wall that is, you know, that ministers are reading to think, hmm, maybe now is the time to get out. Yeah, um, uh, Charles, do you have a sense of that? I mean, uh, we heard about a, a possible election in the fall that didn't materialize. Prime Minister says he doesn't want one, but uh, if if the direction is uh, down, you know, at one point they would have been reelected with a majority. I don't know about that now. Yeah. But obviously the prime minister is saying he doesn't want an election. He's prepared for one should happen. And, you know, you still need the opposition parties to force an election if necessary, being a minority government. But, you know, is Nav jumping because he feels, you know, the, the, you know, the popularity is not as strong, but then really how strong is it in the opposition side too? I don't think any, anywhere do you have a sense of what this is going to be in the end. I think Nav is making a decision based on another issue. I'm not sure he's jumping ship. I'm not sure if he really worries about losing in the election or winning it. I think he's a fighter and he's been at this a long time. And he did lose one at one point. He lost and he came back. Um, listen, even when I was in, in the last government, we all knew the fortunes of the party were going to go down. And I stuck with it as a good soldier that I was. And, uh, you know, but I, I recognized that that would probably be the, the situation, but I didn't want to be the reason for the party to go down. I also wanted to contribute uh, in terms of having, a, you know, at least an informed debate. So I believe that he's leaving not because of the fortunes of the party or the upcoming election, if there is one. I think there's something else at play here, and that's why he's going. Okay, well, maybe we'll find out what it is. Um, John, uh, how much, do you, what kind of likelihood do you think there is that the vaccine rollout, uh, both at a national level and at a provincial level, uh, can be issues that really end up hurting actually both governments, federal, Ontario? 
I think I think it's 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 a it's a very important issue, uh, and and quite frankly, can actually have very detrimental effects on on all governments and all leaders. The vaccine is one of the was one of the hopes that that everybody was looking forward to in, in 2021, without a doubt. You know, we we were talking about vaccines. Um, you know, from the minute this pandemic happened, uh, and a lot of people were absolutely surprised and, and pleasantly surprised to see that we were actually getting some vaccines in uh, before the year was out uh, in 2020. So there, and, and everybody was hoping that 2021 will be that year where, okay, the vaccines will be dis- dispensed, uh, we'll get herd immunity, we'll be back to somewhat of a new normal by, you know, by summer. Uh, but certainly 2021 was a year of optimism because of vaccines. If for some reason we're seeing the federal government and, and the provincial government in governments not doing a, uh, their job and, and dispensing vaccines, uh, that, that can turn quite, uh, quite badly for, for governments because a lot of, a lot of, you know, Ontarians and Canadians, quite frankly, are relying on it and relying on that to, to, to sort of get 2021 to a better year. So, uh, I think it can, and I think governments have to be careful. Uh, with respect to the the blame game, you know, I see that the prime minister, you know, initially said, "Well, it's up to the provinces," uh, and the provinces shut back and said, "Well, look, yeah, we're we're happy to be able to dispense it, but give us more." So you can't get into that blame game because then it's a pox in all your houses. I think what they got to do is just work together. I see that the federal government appointed a firm now to uh, Deloitte, I think it is, that, that is now going to be overseeing the vaccine, the vaccinations from a federal perspective. And I always said this even on the show earlier, if there's got to be a national uh, standard or a national oversight on how it's done, even though the provinces are responsible for disseminating vaccines within their own jurisdictions, but there's got to be some national strategy involved or else we're going to see what we're seeing now in some places where you know hospitals are giving them to their executives and others yeah. are are dispensing it and that's a problem and, and it's got to be fixed well there there actually were guidelines uh there were national guidelines i i don't know how enforceable they are they're being completely ignored so karen uh the prime minister just announced another 20 million doses of pfizer but he didn't say ha ha when are they coming yeah. that's yeah. what they didn't say we don't don't know the terms of the original agreements. I mean, I find it incredible that the United States, which is just a mess when it comes to this, is vaccinating more people than we are, by the way, including Canadians. But um, so so we've got uh, you, there is definitely some kind of supply problem when it comes to when we're getting our deliveries and why we're getting those deliveries later than other countries. We had at the beginning, it was really clear that uh, residents in long-term care would get the first vaccines. I believe I heard a statistic today that in Ontario, only 6%, 6.6% of the vaccines that have been given have gone into the arms of vulnerable long-term care residents. And there's this excuse about Pfizer. But again, other jurisdictions are managing to get it to where they should be. And, and the other thing I heard about this is that the, the fingers are pointing at the general who said speed is more important than getting them in the right place after he was caught giving everybody a holiday over the holidays. He's, he's made comments about how the vaccine should be dispensed. He has no military background. Am, am, am I being too tough on him? No, I, I don't think you are, uh, to be honest. Because I, I think one of the major issues that's confronting the government right now is communication around the vaccine strategy. And they're getting themselves tripped up, and I don't think they need to, but it's, it is it it is one of the most important things I think Canadians are paying attention to right now. Certainly people in Ontario that are living through, you know, again, another round of harsh shutdowns. 
And, you know, first we hear that, you know, they needed time off because of burnout, but then it was we didn't have enough staff, but then it was we were holding back second doses, but then it is, well, we have people that didn't show up for appointments, but then it's, you know, and nobody really understands what is actually happening here because, to your point, Libby, they're not going into the arms of the most vulnerable. I mean, my father was in Sunnybrook Hospital on the COVID ward. He didn't have COVID, but... What? Over Christmas, and he didn't get a shot. Wait, wait a and minute. Was, wait. Well, why was he in the COVID ward if he didn't have COVID? Because he had pneumonia. Oh, I'm sorry. But how is he? He's okay. He's okay. But, you know, here's a guy who was in hospital. He was at Sunnybrook. <laughs> he had pneumonia. He, no, he didn't get vaccinated. It didn't appear that anybody was getting vaccinated at Sunnybrook Hospital. Now, maybe that wasn't one of the sites. But it just begs the question, you know, what? What is the strategy and, and how how is it that people would not show up for their appointments? Uh, that's... How could that be? Because are they not going to take the vaccine? Was there miscommunication informing them about their priority status? So there's so many unanswered questions that the government is now tripping over because they, they don't have an effective communication strategy. Because and, and again, now they were holding back second doses. Now they're giving second doses, but we don't know when the next batch is going to arrive. And so it, it's very for the public that had such great hope. Um, now that hope is beginning to slip away. And, and again, it's the public. We know it's the contacts that need to be reduced, but people are again, not listening the way that we were in March because the communication, I don't think is as clear as it needs to be. Uh, yeah. And there's also these episodes we keep hearing uh, Charles about uh, public officials breaking the rules and taking yeah. lots of holidays. There was another hospital CEO fired yesterday. And, and then we also find out that hospital CEO, vacationing hospital CEO number one, is going to get a, a payout of a million bucks, public money, um, yeah. because it, that ends up as being fired without cause. So, I mean, uh, again, um, is this an opportunity for the opposition here? Are they handling it better? I don't know who's handling it better at all. I mean, it's easy to, uh, you know, on the, as an opposition member looking at the issues, you can certainly cite the problems that have existed. But to your point, people that are positions of authority and of setting examples, not abiding by the very things that they're saying to people to do is infuriating and um, and unfortunate because I think today numbers are as bad as they were in March, if not worse, mortality rates are going up. These vulnerable people in long-term care homes are, are, you know, like they're, they're imprisoned in some respect. You can't even get them out because you don't know what to do in terms of providing safe care and dignity to some of these individuals. And then when you have officials who are out vacationing and so forth, and they are coming back and the signal that they're sending to people is it's bad, but hey, it's not that bad. In other words, people don't seem to have that sense of urgency that they had in March. There seems there seem to be a bit more lackadaisical about what's going on, and yet the numbers are that much worse. And I'm 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 disappointed, certainly um, uh, that what has happened. I'm disappointed at uh, the double speak. I'm disappointed at people, as John mentioned, deflecting blame and accusing others. Man, it's not the, the, the only thing that matters. The only thing that matters for economic recovery is the health recovery and ensuring that the surgency is addressed and managed effectively. I know Minister Anon is now going to be coming up with, I think, within a few hours, determining what the vaccinations and, and the deals that they make with Pfizer, Moderna, and others. Uh, we need those things resolved. And that has given us a sense of hope, to John's point. But to Karen's point, there's no real direction as to how to initiate it. 
and these numbers are spiking, unfortunately. Yeah, I mean, I know uh, I've been telling people chill uh, because a, a lot of people really exercised want to know how will they know when it's their turn to get vaccinated and and. I've put that question to authorities. They just ignore me, of course. But, um, you know, uh, it's not coming up anytime soon. It's interesting. Uh, you know, the star put up a tracker made by uh, two Canadian researchers. Really simple. It was just a few. Uh, it was your age plus a, a bunch of yes or no questions. Are you a health worker? Are you another kind of essential worker or whatever? Do you work in a or live in a congregate setting? And uh, I, I know that... Um, my vaccine ter- turn came up sometime between uh, July and August. So, uh, you know, people and uh, even older people, like it's not coming anytime soon, John. No. Well, and, and that remains the problem. And as, as you initially uh, mentioned in your in your question regarding, you know, can this have an, a negative effect or detrimental effect to governments? Absolutely. As we talked about, because it is the one thing that people are looking forward to to try to get us back to to somewhat, somewhat level of a new normal. But, you know, again, this is a pandemic like we've never seen before, right? So we've talked about this before, Libby, where, you know, governments of all levels, uh, and, 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 um, you know, of all jurisdictions are facing something that they've never faced before. They're facing this vaccine. This is not like a flu vaccine where, you know, we've got stockpiles of it and we know when to give it out and we know how to give it out and we know that people will and go. And that was messed up too this year, by the way. Well, <laughs> it, it was given the situation, but normally it's not, right? We, governments and, and health officials and health authorities generally know how many people they're going to be are coming for, for flu vaccines and, and whatnot. But this is different because now you've got a vaccine that has different components. Right. And we talked about Pfizer, the fact that it is it is a hugely complicated vaccine uh, that has to be stored and it can't be this, it can't be uh, shipped to people. You've got to kind of go to it. And then there's hope with Moderna and there's a few others that are coming down the pike now, which which are all good. But but again, that doesn't help to have that these vaccines, which are incredibly uh, efficient and efficacious being so difficult to shift because it does cause problems. And then that's why there's issues of, you know, I remember Rick Hillier being criticized because he said, well, maybe we could just give one dose of, of the Pfizer vaccine uh, to more people. And then everybody, everybody. Yeah. What does he know? But, but then again, you know, you saw that in the U.S., Dr. Fauci and others are saying, well, maybe we're looking at having one dose of the Pfizer vaccine. No, he's just saying that he's going to that he's going to give out those doses and uh, they were going to assume that right, they're going right. to get but the second adds, ones. It adds, to the, it adds to the confusion overall. But but I do think, though, that governments are now starting to get their act together. They understand the, 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 the problems with these issues that have, that have happened over the last couple of months since this, is, since this has come out. And I would suspect, quite frankly, maybe that, you know, this month moving forward, forward, you're not going to see the complication in the vaccine dispensing because now we've got more vaccines and we've got different types of vaccines coming into play. Well, um, we will see about that. Now, Karen, uh, uh, you obviously are the CEO of a facility that is basically closed. We're getting more restrictions as soon as we're off the air, I assume. And one of the things that is uh, reported or speculated that's going to happen, there's been a lot of controversy about having these big box stores open. They have big lineups. And not to mention that, you know, our own Canadian small businesses and not so small businesses are being hit. And, uh, you know, people are spending their money at these multinationals. So the, the word is that they're going to cut back on hours now. Is that, is that good enough? Well, it, it's complicated. And uh, but, you know, it just it just drives me nuts to think that Amazon is going to continue to get a bump 
No, and, and don't get me started on volume. <laughs> and meanwhile, they're one of the most egregious workplace practices going. Um, but, but and it is hard to see the local retailers. You just can't compete with Amazon or Costco or Walmart. Um, just have to watch it all happen from the sidelines of curbside pickup. But you know, it's also interesting around the psychology of pandemics. And you know, John had said this is we've never had this before, but but we actually have. There's been plagues and flus and. Um, the, and so, not flus, pardon me, but the Spanish flu. And but but you know what what we're experiencing as well is a little bit of you know it's affecting certain people very very badly. But for a lot of people, the impact is um, when we read about, not when we experience. And our actions are informed by usually our experience. And so it's it's becoming more and more difficult for a lot of people to to be as serious as they need to be about the pandemic and about the restrictions and about um, all, all of the um, things that they're being asked to do around not so, not be social and visit people and be with people because their experience of the virus personally is quite different than what the virus can actually do. Well, and yeah. so that's something that the government has to kind of figure out because, you know, to the converted, they don't need any more restrictions, right? Like they know they're not going to go and inter- interface with any other people. They're going to wear their masks. They're going to do what needs to be done. But there's a large group of people that have a very different experience that need a different message about why it's important that they curb their life um, in a way that they may not actually see the need to do. That's uh, a very interesting, I think, and important take. Uh, Charles, uh, we have a caller who has a question for you. Barry in North York. Hi, Barry. Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, yes, my question, Charles, is this. Is how difficult or how easy is it to impose penalties, like really heavy fines, on these long-term care places that don't seem to be doing anything about the situation. And if it's easy, then why isn't it being done? The only, yeah, bear. The only bear thing things. that they realize, the only thing that they explain, that they actually respond to is money and fines. Okay. We'll hear Charles's response. Yeah. Well, thank well, thanks for the question, Barry. And, um, you know, it's not just in long-term care. In fact, enforcement is probably the biggest issue when it comes to changing people's behavior in the general public, let alone in long-term care. And that's part of the issue um, that I think even Karen was referencing is how do we impose and change people's habits. In regards to long-term care, it's such a sad situation. It is really, and, I, and I, to the extent that regulation and the bureaucracy are doing their utmost to try to provide for restrictions, but the uh, the, the private sector long-term care homes, all of them, frankly, are, are inundated. There's a lack of PSWs to provide the necessary supports. There's temp agencies that are saying they don't even want to go into these homes now because they're worried about liability issues as employers. The thing is much bigger than uh, finding them, Barry. It's how do we enable them more so? And how do we invest in what's necessary to provide for the care that these uh, individuals' needs are so vulnerable? Um, True, but in the long run, there's going to be a fallout, Barry. There's going to be a lot of changes in protocols. In fact, I'm overseeing the development of a long-term care home and an affordable housing complex in Toronto. It's a 350-unit complex that's being built, and it's going to be different than the others. And we're trying to put the appropriate protocols in the construction of that home to enable the care that's necessary and the freedom. Really, these people need to live with some dignity. I mean, they're at the mercy of so many. And it's it saddens me that this is happening to our to our seniors in that respect. But in terms of finding them, yeah, there's going to be a lot of issues 
uh, after this pandemic. Right now, they just got to deal with the issue of the pandemic. Right. I mean, they got to fix and care for these individuals. After that, we'll see a lot of changes, I suspect, and charges possibly, depending upon how some of them were neglected as a result of this issue. I sure hope so. Thank okay, you very uh, much we do that. too. Thanks. Um, there's a, a huge amount to discuss, uh, to un- unpack of, on all of that. Uh, we're running out of time. And, and just by the way, Charles, because we talk about long-term care a lot here, one of the things I heard from homes is that uh, there are too many bureaucratic obstacles to getting help into the homes and that it just takes too long because of bureaucracy and paperwork and and all of that kind of stuff but that's really a discussion for uh, yeah an, we need another... we need frontline people we need people that do the work to do the work to enable them to secure these individuals absolutely Okay, so uh, basically we are out of time, so I'm going to give everybody 20 seconds, starting with Karen. Yeah, no, I think that, um, you know, I think John mentioned that the government is understanding the importance of the communication about the vaccination rollout and the supply chain issues. And so hopefully we'll see some improvement, and I think that will uh, go a long way, combined with the message that in the short term people just have to take it seriously. John. I, I, I think that, you know, we're here today. We'll, we'll hear today, actually, shortly, what will happen with respect to the lockdowns. I think that, you know, this government, certainly the Premier has always been trying to make that balance between, you know, keeping the economy going, but also ensuring health care. I think it's gone to a point now where uh, further restrictions, we'll see how further they are. But more importantly, though, you can put as many restrictions as you can, but if it's up to, it's up to us. To have to uh, all of us to have to just sort of limit our, our interactions, limit our travel, and limit our social gatherings. You know, you can put all the rules you can, but but people still gathered, and 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 we saw that over Christmas, and and, and that's going to hurt us. Uh, so I'm, I'm hoping to see that that these new rules will cause people to be a little bit more reflective, uh, and uh, and less uh, less on the traveling side of things. Okay, and Charles. Well, Libby, thank you for having me on your show, and Karen Thanks. and John, thank you for being gentle with me as well. Discussion. <laughs> um, but the issue is not a gentle issue, right? We we have two major issues that I see that needs to be resolved, and it's no fault of anyone, but this global pandemic and the fact that it's hitting Ontario and Canada that much stronger than in the second wave that I had anticipated. I think most have anticipated that would be a second wave, but not to the degree it's happening. I just worry about the fiscal fallout and the economic recovery and the ability for us to withstand these decisions that we're making. And in hindsight, had we been really serious about lockdowns and, and, and we had attacked this pandemic from the get-go, we probably wouldn't have known that it would have been as worse as it was because people would have been critical of us having done the lockdown in the first place because it was no issue. There was no, there was no real cases. But the fact is, we didn't do that to the extent we should have, and now we're in this pandemic, and this I mean, in this urgent issue. And, uh, guys, we just got to come together to your point. This is not a partisan matter at all. This is really a health issue, and only resolving it will we then be able to resolve the recovery. Okay. Thank you so much, Charles Souza, John Capobianco, and Karen Stintz. Uh, interesting <laughs> conversation, as always. We really appreciate it. Thanks, Libby. Okay. Thank okay. you, guys. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. 
Heard weekdays from noon to one. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.